Everybody, can you hear me okay? Hi. So we're going to get started in about um, a minute or two. Um, we'll have a short little introductory video, and then we'll get this uh, we'll get this show on the road. Okay? Cool. How's everybody feeling? All right. Very good. We'll be right back after these words.
Alright, as soon as Peggy gets here, we can rock and roll. All right, everyone. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to the Penn World Voices Festival. Give yourselves a round of applause for being here, please. This, uh, this panel um, and reading is entitled uh, After the Storm, uh, Puerto Rico Poetry and Resistance. And we are here, of course, in the legendary New Yorican Poets Cafe, where I think a panel like this should be. Um, take this moment, if you could, please, to familiarize yourself where things are. The restrooms are there. There's one upstairs and downstairs. And also, take this moment to silence your cell phones and all electronic devices. I see people reaching into their pockets and purses as we speak. It's a beautiful thing. All right? Thank yous, first of all. I want to thank, uh, first and foremost, um, the people of Puerto Rico and all Boricuas living in the diaspora, whose goal it is to decolonize the island and bring self-sufficiency to the island once and for all. Yes. To, um, to Chip Raleigh, Harold Norris, Kim Chan, Catherine Rothschild, the logistical teams behind the Penn World Voices Festival, thank you so much uh, for allowing us this uh, space to be here and to talk. Um, I want to thank the co-sponsors of the event, Penn uh, America and the uh, Poetry Foundation, um, the administration and staff of the New Yorican Poets Cafe, um, which, um, as some of you may know, has grown from the living room of Miguel Algarín uh, into this uh, amazing uh, performance arts venue, uh, performing arts venue, which now celebrates, I believe, 45 years uh, in existence here on the Lower East Side. Uh, yeah, that's, that's for real, y'all. Um, venues like this come and go every day, but this one is still, still kicking. This event, in addition to being part of the Penn World Voices Festival, is also part of a series called Hashtag Poets for Puerto Rico. Um, it was uh, Willy Perdomo, uh, I believe, who brought us all together here at Poets House for the first time 
uh, for that reading and with the help of many poets in the community, including myself, Martin, uh, I believe there's some Tita de poets in the house back there. Um, this was followed by a reading in Philadelphia, which was uh, spearheaded by uh, Denise, um, and one in the Bronx uh, by um, Noel Quinones, who wanted to be here, but is actually off hosting another fundraiser. <laughs> there you go. Um, and one in Chicago by uh, Idalmi Noriega and Jose Olivares, poet. Uh, there are more readings nationwide um, that are either going to be hosted um, or are set for Los Angeles, uh, New Orleans, and I believe uh, Houston, Texas, right? So the line between poetry and politics, if it ever existed truly, uh, surely does not exist for those of us uh, who live our politics through our bodies, right? This is something that you should keep in mind. We're going to get into that a little bit more presently. We're here in addition to um, raising consciousness and you know, talking about poetry. We're also here to raise funds for an organization called Comprometidos. Um, all proceeds donated at the door through the online ticket sales and through the sales of the books uh, will go to them. In the last year, the organization has focused 100% on the rebuilding effort. And I don't mean simply to shore up what was broken, but also to provide new measures of permanent self-sufficiency um, in the energy sector through solar power, um, partnering with NGOs in New Orleans to learn best practices in dealing with hurricane relief, and to provide support to Puerto Rican-owned and operated small businesses on the island. Uh, Comprometidos, and I believe this entire panel here, understands that the solution for the island is certainly not going to come from this administration or from any kind of top-down thinking, but by the efforts of gente people, everyday people, on the ground, blue-collar laborers, artisans, innovative thinkers. So thank you again to the New Yorican for providing us this space to, um, to support this organization and its work. The panel is going to run pretty much as follows. We, the panelists, are going to take 10 minutes to talk to you um, through poems and through some, you know, some remarks. And then we're going to talk to each other through Q&A. Then we're going to sign some books. Uh, the proceeds will go to Comprometidos, and we're done. So I'd like to take a minute first to introduce our panelists, whose full bios you can access at the website, okay? I'm going to only introduce them very briefly here. Um, Denise Froman's recent uh, poem received worldwide acclaim during this year's Oscar broadcast as the centerpiece of Twitter's Here We Are campaign, uh, which focused on women's empowerment and growth, um, a subject that we are familiar with uh, in the past year, and we should be familiar with 24-7, really. Uh, so please welcome Denise if you could, yes. Julio Marsang is the author of the seminal nonfiction work, The Spanish-American Roots of William Carlos Williams, which once and for all centers Williams in both the U.S. and Puerto Rican literary canons. His forthcoming novel is called Don't Let Me Die in Disneyland, <laughs> which is actually not, as I understand, the biography of uh, Sean Spicer. So please welcome Julio. <laughs> Peggy Robles Alvarado is a tenured educator, poet, performer, editor of the Abuela Stories Project, and an MFA candidate in performance at the Pratt Institute, where she'll be going after this to defend her thesis. So congratulations. Please welcome Peggy. And on the end, we have the Pablo Neruda of North American authors. The multiple award-winning poet and professor Martin Espada has authored 
dozens of books, and that's literally dozens of books of poetry, prose, and criticism around the world, including his latest collection of poems, uh, which are mostly um, in dedication to his dad. Uh, Vivas to those who have failed. Please welcome Martin to the stage. And I am the moderator. Uh, my name is Rich Villar. Um, during the day, I work in social work and, um, and community navigating. But I'm also an organizer, an educator, teacher in the community, um, in a community writing program called La Sopa. And, uh, but most importantly, I'm a poet, 24-7, 365. Um, the sociological term for this is master status, right? Master status is an overarching identity. It's something that you are pretty much all the time, mother, brother, sister, poet, right? We're gathered in this space on the anniversary of the death of Pedro Albizu Campos, who was the president of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party. Nationalist fervor in PR in Puerto Rico started in large part, and this is being completely mild about it, a long line of civilian administrators brought to Puerto Rico by the United States since uh, the end of the Spanish-American War pretty much failed to address the long-term economic needs for the island, and in fact set up the economy in Puerto Rico to service sugar barons in the United States, uh, U.S. bureaucrats whose jobs were on the island, U.S. business interests on the island. Clear pattern is beginning to emerge, right? From the very start, no one had Puerto Ricans in mind when the U.S. took over Puerto Rico as a spoil of war. In fact, those of our forebears who had the audacity to demand that Puerto Ricans run their own affairs in an independent republic of Puerto Rico soon found themselves ostracized by the political elite, harassed by the colonial government, and imprisoned by the United States for their beliefs. Still others were murdered in their own homes, in their businesses, in their communities. We remember the Ponce Massacre in 1937 in which 21 people lost their lives and over 200 were wounded at the hands of a U.S. governor. No one has ever been charged for this crime. No government official was ever held accountable. Pedro Albizu Campos died in prison in some very strange circumstances. No one ever really answered for it. The U.S. would like us to remember the violent acts of nacionalistas, but they suffer some very convenient amnesia when it comes to remembering state-sponsored violence, of which Ponce and Puerto Rico is only one example in a very long and sad history of U.S. foreign policy. Albizu spent 26 years in prison for his efforts to liberate PR and died in 1965, again, under circumstances not fully explained by the United States government. Alongside Albizu, in nationalist thought, in prison, and in exile were always the poets. Clemente Soto Vélez, Juan Antonio Corregel, Ulia de Burgos. These poets and many others formed a part of a generation that found themselves in exile, both internally and externally during the US occupation of Puerto Rico. Some of them found their way to New York. As detailed in an anthology called Papiros de Babel, uh, edited by Pedro Lopez Adorno, there existed an entire generation of Puerto Rican poets in New York, many of whom carried the weight of grief, not only from leaving behind their homeland, but leaving their homeland to the whims of industrialists and colonizers from the United States. Soto Vélez, Corregere, de Burgos are three of the giants we look to when we consider the tradition of resistance in which we are steeped, which all Puerto Rican poets are steeped in. When you look to a building like this, which was... The New Eureka was founded in 73, right? You have to remember that for at least 100 years prior, it was the poets of Puerto Rico who insisted upon our national character, our Puerto Ricanidad. 
who declared that poetry was, in the words of Soto Vélez, a way to set humanity on fire and strip ignorance of its power. And that, in the words of Corejer, we would be Puerto Rican even if we were born on the moon. This is where we come from. This is what we are. We cannot separate poetry from politics if we tried. It is the reason we're here, to serve as memory in a world frightfully inclined to forget. When congressmen forget that the dollar is the official currency of Puerto Rico, when presidents only seek us out when the primary vote is tight, and when orange goblins appear on our shores to toss paper towels to hurricane-ravaged citizens, <laughs> it has to be the poets to remind us how long we've been dealing with this bullshit. The poets carry the hopes of the nation, the identity of the nation, the idea of nationality itself. Right now on the island, we face the specter of blackouts and crumbling infrastructure, long-term economic struggle, and an exodus of unprecedented proportions. Along with these, we are facing the loss of our essential national character. We face the loss of the island itself, to Wall Street, to vultures looking to plant beachfront homes in the same places our ancestors learned to read and to reason. And incredibly, we face a class of politician on the island who looks to precisely the same colonizer, the same nation, who refers to us with a straight face as unincorporated territory and expects this nation to extend the promises of statehood. We, the poets, have a responsibility to remind our people through verse, through advocacy, through cultural work, through performance, through scholarship, exactly what history exists here, where and how we ended up, and where we may go from here. The poet must imagine new realities, deny conventional wisdom, and demand even joy where it does not exist now. We must not only resist the fake news of foreign debt, but also the threat of extinction. I can't place it in any starker terms. The poet Pedro Pietri and the visual artist Adal Maldonado envisioned a new nation called the Spirit Republic of Puerto Rico. In his manifesto for the project, Pietri declared, the power of memory eliminates the threat of extinction. We are called to remember, and we are also called to joy. The Spirit Republic is a joyful place, and if you've ever seen images of Puerto Ricans playing drums on airplanes, in schools, on the streets of El Barrio, or indeed in the middle of a blackout, you'll understand what I mean. So I'm going to end my portion of the panel and my time with a poem in that spirit. Manifesto After the Storm. Joy is a quinto in the dark or by the light of a cell phone which hasn't worked since Tuesday, except to illuminate the skirts of the dancer who hasn't done this in years, and the drummer who tries to follow her and stumbles, palms stinging from the effort, or the sweat beating across Beto's forehead in sica rhythm. The entire town has brought light to answer back, to greet fango and bare feet pounding the earth back to insistent life. We've been doing this since Jukiju, was a baby, tossing his toys across El Junque to protest the coming wind. I need to tell you, this is nothing new, querida. Huracán is just another way to say temper tantrum. And even the existence of the monster to the north is permitted. An ocean rolls its mighty mouth away from Africa, and the tumbao begins anew. Yes, you must deal with practicalities, but never let practicalities deal with you. This ends nothing 
A human heartbeat is protest against the storm, always has been. When the saviors reach you, finally, after braving the waves and cutting through on ships the size of imperial imagination, and they offer to you not the mangos of your children's empty bellies, but salt and refined sugar and Vienna sausage, you can speak instead to the turtle in your dreams who is painted on the walls of your rib cage and ask her to pull sustenance from her shell. That's real. Do you still disbelieve? Look again. The dancers have conjured all the light we ever needed, rising over Fajardo. Tattoo it across your heart. Use it to light the dancers, the poets, the island, remaking itself. Next up is Denise. Ow. Yay! I gotta put this on. Yay, so, uh, Pen America's had uh, events here all week, I believe. Um, but I don't know if they've had New Yorkans at the New Yorkan all week. So, can we make some noise for that? Ow! It's, it's too many Boricuas in the room. We have reached our quota. Uh, also, because we're gathered here in the name of Puerto Rico and to give all of our love and our, and our, and our disposable income to Puerto Rico as well, um, I want us to make noise and send that energy to the island. Can we do that real quick? They need to know that we're together. Thank you, um, thank you to Rich. Thank you to Martin. Thank you to everybody at PEN America. I'm grateful to be here and honored to be among these poets. So um, in light of the, the context that Rich beautifully laid out for us, uh, we know that there's been a mass, a massive exodus um, in, in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Um, they've estimated 300,000 um, Puerto Ricans have left. Again, those are just estimates. Um, they've estimated that 1,000 people have, have passed away, have died. Um, this is the second largest blackout in the world, um, the worst blackout in this country's history. And so if you put it into those, that context, you start to see um, that the lack of support the island is getting is really, um, uh, is something. I'll, I'll leave it there. Uh, in, in thinking about the, the exodus, though, there was an article that the New York Times um, published recently uh, called Making a Crypto Utopia in Puerto Rico. So the cryptocurrency uh, bang, boom, or I don't know, I'll call it that for now. Um, uh, after the hurricane, uh, there were investors, entrepreneurs, they're vulture capitalists who see an opportunity and an opening in the suffering and in the crisis. Um, and that's exactly what's happened. So they have descended, a group of investors um, have descended on Puerto Rico. Um, and in this article that profiles what their, uh, what their goals are, which is essentially to not just make Puerto Rico some sort of headquarters for Bitcoin or video coin or all that stuff, not just a headquarters, they actually want to build their own city. And they want to take over old San Juan, so they're looking to buy, they're looking to have their own bank, their own museum, uh, essentially like settler colonialism all over again. So this is a new poem, um, and the, uh, what they're calling their new city, um, I'm not going to give the, the, the term legitimacy, but I'm just going to share it with you all. They want to call it Puertopia. 
And you know, I encourage you to email the editor of this article. Partopia. The Cokies don't sing anymore. They click. Mosquitoes turn drones. Metropolis of crypto bro. Tax deductible greed. Profit on a hundred thousand million. An island drowns. A playground emerges. A boy and his toy. Depending on the faith, the most dangerous part of a wealthy man is his index finger. What he points to, who he lands on. A civilization, disposable income, pirate in cargo shorts. All his business plans lack rhythm. His handshakes ain't cooked right. Meanwhile, we, diaspora separated by sea, peel platanos and cut them on the same angle our mothers taught us to. Clap when the plane lands on either shore. We know men like this sleep with both eyes closed, have never known their own blood in someone else's bank account. Christopher Columbus 2.0, colonialism, selfie stick up a country for sale, swipe until there are new buildings, until you believe a wall is a home, landlord of nothing, king of no good sky. The night tucks away all her beloved stars. The moon nestles low in El Yunque's breast. Where are the Puerto Ricans? Where are the Puerto Ricans? Where are the Puerto Ricans, she whispers. Cuchifrito ghost town. Battery operated citizenship with an asterisk. An island is not a tarmac. A disaster is not a destination. A hunger is not a city. Folks, if you want to come and sit down here, you know, in the New Yorkian tradition, please do that. Um, this is a gathering. So uh, I think often about the, my family's relationship to the island and the moments when I would go to Puerto Rico and visit my family members and my abuela. Um, and so this, this memory I have, um, sometimes our parents, our grandparents do things and we don't understand the significance of it at the time. And so this memory um, is uh, of my abuela. Her name is Doña Teresa. Um, and I remember when I was about eight or nine, she killed a chicken in front of my face. So um, I don't know why. I mean, we were hungry, but I don't know. I was about to say. Yeah, but it, it was, I think there was something underneath that. Um, and maybe this is, this is what it was. Doña Teresa and the chicken. The wooden house in Castaner didn't come with air conditioner or anything cool. The heat was its own kind of music, and so was Abuela, demanding, sharp-tongued, the kind of woman I imagine whose teeth grew in because she told them to. So the chicken never had a chance. It ran around the backyard, flapping its black feathered wings for mercy, for God's attention. But Papa Dios knew better than to get in between a woman trying to feed her grandkids. I looked over my shoulder, and there she was, chasing him. Like an old lover, she came back to haunt, yelling, Hijo de puta, sinvergüenza, ven acá. Her rosary beads slapped against her chest over and over like a chant. And you knew everything in her path was temporary. Even the wind buckled at the knees at the sight of a woman too wise to act like her blood was softer than it was.
and I saw her do it, and I think she knew, because the chicken clucked so hard it spit up its own good throat, and she laughed, grabbed him by the neck, swung him high above her head like a propeller, and all summer I tried, but couldn't unsee that. Once, she gutted mom's favorite pig with a machete and fed it to her on her 12th birthday. And maybe that's how mama learned to love us, to kill the thing that feeds you. Years later, she didn't go to her best friend's funeral or the vecina who mothered her in New York, barely made it through abuelas. I suppose all she had was to love until death and no more. But when we got to the funeral home and saw Doña Teresa lying in the casket, arms cocked, chin cocked up, the whole family busted out crying, wanting her to come back, wanting her to shout, didn't I prepare you better than this? All right, because we're in the Lower East Side, um, because we're in the Lower East Side, and because uh, I come from people who work with their hands, um, growing up, the Piraguero was like the, the man on the block. You know, uh, you know, other kids were chasing the soft, Mr. Softy. I was like, you can have him. I'm looking for the umbrella, right? So this is a, a queer, this poem is called um, A Queer Girl's Ode to the Piraguero. Oh, Piraguero, my first lover, the only man I ever wanted anything from. I sprinted half blocks for you, got off the bus two stops early, took the long way home just to see your rainbow umbrella. Oh, Piraguero, candy cool syrup god, Boricua Batmobile, wooden cart pushing, bobsled papi. When the viejitas asked for the 10th time whether I got un novio, the closest name on my tongue was you. <laughs> Who else made me break my neck in two? Who else gave me so much for a dollar? <laughs> Who raised hell when they called your island delicacy snow cone or worse, shaved ice? <laughs> I trusted you, the hallelujah work of your bare hands the dirty white kitchen towel you laid over a fat block of ice, and not once did I ask you questions. And when they pushed you off Ninth Ave, when you packed up on 96, I only saw you after ball games on 131st and 5th, when the hipsters threw ice in paper cups, added nutmeg and real ingredients like mint leaves, called this an upscale makeover for a poor man's treat. I want to shout out, no! Leave my man alone. Tell me who else could turn a blue shopping cart into a 57 Chevy or a mom and pop shop. Maybe the Elotero on El Centro, a Chudo ladies by the A train. Maybe my mama, once the nanny, who sewed curtains for a couple upstairs made an office out of her hands. Like my pops, who cut his saxophone into the velvet flesh of night, rearranged the altitude of a palladium dance floor and then a plump wad of cash, a worn rubber band, a 401k shoebox, which is to say praise everything we build under the table. The underworld of workers and wielders, America's thumping baseline, the chorus of a country where two for one is the best hook to every good song I know. Like the way you turn my tongue into a red carpet, like the first woman I ever loved. Oh, Piraguero, you winter, my whole mouth, 
you conductor of cool. You're the only one I know, the only one who can govern the thick heat like a DJ scratching a glacier. You make the whole city rock. Get it, get it. Get it. Vaya mi gente. I want to thank Penn. I want to thank the New Yorican. I want to thank every one of these poets on this panel. Uh, Rich, Denise, Julio, and Martin. And I want to thank every one of you for being here. If you speak Spanish or Spanglish, you might have to help someone next to you who doesn't. Excerpt from a speech given by Don Pedro Albizu Campos y Ponce, Puerto Rico, October 12, 1933. A people's sense of unity has to come from women. The woman nurtures the unity of a race, the unity of a civilization, the unity of a people. Puerto Rico will be free. Puerto Rico will be sovereign and independent when the Puerto Rican woman feels free, sovereign, and independent. And for the Puerto Rican woman to achieve this unity, she has to feel it in her bones. Don Alviso dijo, Puerto Rico will rise in the hands of women. Bemba colora, bomba straddling, drum call and response women. Después de llorar hay que cantar women. Orando en voz alta, healing circle, leading cipher women. We know God is a woman, type women. Yo uso falda pero tengo los pantalones bien puestos women. Black and white Puerto Rican flag waving women. Nasty t-shirt wearing women. Cagándose en la madre del presidente women. Maestras teaching by candlelight women, iluminando el pensamiento women, greeting students with a smile despite a missing paycheck women, suicide prevention hotline women, pulling people off the edge, off the bottle, off the noose, off the delusion of flying off that building, holding all of them in the arms of her voice, those women. Soup kitchen, stove sweating, que Dios bendiga Puerto Rico prayed over pots of rice, conjuring cocinera women. First responder, temporary housing, blue tarp tying, cagándose en la madre de FEMA, rooftop women. Insurgent pajonua women. Brillante pensadora moderna women. Independentista bloguera afro-caribeña who spell negra with a capital N and reserve their two middle fingers for Rose Yo type women. Side hustle, side eyes, sidewalk. En la esquina, la bandorera del barrio fino. Vendo comida, tengo salón en mi casa y te hago la uña type women. Bodeguera chanting, yo levanto a Puerto Rico vendiendo vaso en colores. That type of woman. Midwives, dueña del empuja y respira que ahí viene nueva vida. That woman, positioning bodies into portals to the hum of hurricane soul catching. In dark bedrooms, threshold, crossing over, liminal type women. Caretaking, home attendant, hospice, end of life, Oya's daughters kind of women. We know the real death toll kind of women. Witnessing the last rites, last breaths, working to the last hour. Don't have time for self-care, women. No hay tiempo que perder, ma gotta save ourselves, women. Reverse migration, New Yorican del Bronx a San Juan, wise women. Packing suitcases full of seeds to replant the island, women. La mano en la masa y en el lodo, women. No vamos pa'l monte porque esto aquí se llama borinquen, women. The free Oscar Lopez Rivera women, the care package volunteer women, the we ain't got much, but we sending more than just some damn crackers and a juice box type women. Ahora es tiempo de renacer women. Somos la verdadera luz del mundo women. 
Somos mothers, madrinas, sisters, abuela women, doctors, lawyers, ama de casa, curandera women. We are poets, experts in dying, resurrecting, rebuilding, en la cosecha. So call us preciosa, call us perlas del Caribe, call us, we know Puerto Rico se levanta women, because we feel it in our bones. Gracias, gracias, mi gente. So the next piece is for my Afro-Borinqueños. They need to be part of the discourse. Thank you. I need space. I'm little, but I need some space. Jesus, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I'm like struggling with this. But um, the next piece is for my Afro-Boricuas. They need to be part of this discourse. They need to be included in the discourse of resiliency. Um, this comes from Pedro Pietri's saying. He said, aquí, to be called negrito means to be called love. Negrito lindo, tú eres la borba del barrio. He is brown sugar, melao encorbatao. Fights against the black man's burden, the boricua blues, all with a swagger and sazonao. Un hombre cordial con el tumbao de la calle. Made of East Harlem street concrete, flavored with Brooklyn cement sentiments. Entered the belly of the beast, emerged a transformed man. Through academia, he redeemed his once blood-stained hands. His empowerment was self-taught. Went from young lord fitted berets to Caribbean fedora hats, expensive suits, wingtip shoes, his Ibarito smile completes that suit and tie. A once hot-headed street thug, now a classy cool cat. He believes education helps develop tolerance. Negrito lindo! Proclaiming our people have the genes of geniuses, so we must refuse to be mules. Still releasing the trauma of conquest, trying to shed the overseer's side effects. Pain slowly released over centuries. He demands more of our youth, the next generation. La juventud, mira, párate firme, que tú no naciste para sentarte. Tienes que ser fuerte, fuerte. Palante pa siempre. He advises them to read, speak, and write well. Encourages them to find role models within themselves. Some say big fish die by the mouth. But not this one, no sir. Él tiene la clave en la boca. Que entona con el pracata y el guaguanco del corazón. Cadence of his voice resurrects the kings of the past. Calls on caciques to rise. The tempo of his speech steady. With the strength of an old Negro spiritual. The heat of a rumbero, the grace of el flamenco. He's a descendant of los pioneros. Refuses to be intimidated by any crowd. Never to be placed in one category. Never to be boxed in. The census needs a new form for this kind of man. He is more than a simple set of words. No one definition ever evolving. Lifelong learner, international traveler. Negrito lindo, orgulloso de todo lo que es de color. No set of parentheses can define, contain, or restrain this bloodline that holds the beauty of the world in each of its DNA strands. A genetic set, rainbow set in the soil of many lands that stretch to Africa, Asia, Europe, Ponce, San Juan, Cuba, Nueva York, El Bronx, aquí hasta el monte. He took our dark-skinned abuelas out of the kitchen and invited them to dance, celebrated their hereditary sancocho, flavored their racially mixed mofongo, relished in their café con poquita leche without shame, found beauty in the mahogany, tabaco y ron, hues of our people, made it safe to say, yo soy negro, he took black, kinky, nappy, prieto, moreno, he took boricua, jíbaro, jabao, mulato, mestizo, meclao, he took excon, boca grande, desobediente, presentao, he took calle, tigrin, tranquilo, rebucero, reformao, and made it all so damn beautiful. Negrito lindo, 
tú eres la bomba del barrio. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, for my last piece, like I said, if you speak Spanglish, you might need to help a friend next to you if they don't. <laughs> the questionnaire asked me to indicate my primary language. I checked off other. And in big, bold, blue bubble letters wrote in Spanglish. Yeah. My Spanglish carries a Gillette under her tongue, ready to cut you if you say she's the sister of ghetto Spanish. <laughs> my Spanglish drops the S to make it ma o menos. Switches the R with the L pa no botar la suerte. Trills her R's cuando tiene un pique rastrero. And if you question the placement of her accent marks, she will replace them with side eye. My Spanglish gets in trouble for falling asleep in church and winking at altar boards. Climbs the fence at High Ridge Pool to swim after hours. My Spanglish burns her eyeliner with a lighter before applying it. My Spanglish can't stop sucking her teeth. My Spanglish knows the difference between coquito and limber, patelito, empanada, frío, frío, and piragua. Knows how to carry the weight on her thighs, not her shoulders. My Spanglish cooks farina, tembleque, habichuela con dulce, arroz con leche, calls it all comfort food. My Spanglish knows tamarindo was a popular drink, and it still is. <laughs> knows every Prince, Hector Lavoe, and Fernandito Villalona song by heart. My Spanglish wants to be called sexy, not cute. My Spanglish wants to be called smart before sexy, not cute. Wants to be called beautiful, like the Blanquitas, her ex parades around the hood to show how he has moved up and on. My Spanglish mends her broken heart with bachata cortavena de Frank Reyes. Gets drunk to bolero del buki. My Spanglish always clap, clap, claps when the plane lands safely. My Spanglish thinks fresca, presenta y malcria are all compliments. Married her cousin to help him get his green card. Don't let her kids sleep over anyone's house. My Spanglish got crooks and cops sitting at the same table at her daughter's quinceañera. My Spanglish has a college degree and earned summa cum laude in resting bitch face while riding the two train. <laughs> My Spanglish is Washington Heights before the gourmet fruit markets replaced C-Town. Before tomándose una fría in front of el building, jugando dominó con los pana was considered loitering. Before the New York Times and transplants from Minnesota discovered pegao on BuzzFeed and renamed it Stockpot Rice. My Spanglish is inward before it became more affordable than Williamsburg and was renamed Northern Manhattan. My Spanglish spray painted over billboards trying to rename El Condado de la Salsa, the Piano District. Wonders if it would have made more sense to name us the Bombay Plena District, the Homa Hip Hop District, or the Boogie Down District. But my Spanglish is certain that the Bronx has always been and will forever be art. My Spanglish knows a fire escape is also a terrace. My Spanglish knows there is no other, heal without, no other way to heal without sana que sana culito de rana. My Spanglish can't tell stories about el campo in translation, can't flirt using proper grammar. My Spanglish knows there is no other way to say conchole papi, you look good. My Spanglish has a tía sin papeles. My Spanglish has a tía that works in a factoría. My Spanglish has a tía that takes care of neighborhood carajitos. My Spanglish will never call itself broken. My Spanglish is an unwanted child who insists on being born. She is huérfana, crying an unpaid debt of commonwealth to mainland lost in a promesa. Leche corta of impoverished madre patria and starved island retreat. She's the unruly second generation daughter of un-American and unstandardized. She's the endangered tongue of a sanctioned homeland y un barrio cabrón. My Spanglish is always trying to create a bridge, connecting Quisqueya, Borinquen, y un verano en Nueva York. 
My Spanglish is a scared seven-year-old in an English-only class where Miss Marcy tells me to sit in a corner every time my tongue resists pressing Jew into you and Jess into yes, insisting that mommy's homemade lunches are better than cafeteria food, certain that standing on El Rufo is the only place I have ever seen stars. My Spanglish has an abuelito whose primary language is storytelling, but she doesn't have the time to sit and listen. My Spanglish can't understand all his consejos, but feels exactly what he means when he says, te amo, te amo all the way, nena. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Spirit of things, uh, I want to read a little poem. I wrote a book in Spanish called Puerta de Tierra. It's a bunch of recollections of my youth, and they're written kind of in the voice of a child. That's my daughter when she was five. Now she's 25. And it's called Temporal. I'm sorry, I have no translation for this. Cuando desperté, habían clavado las ventanas y entraban empapados Padrino y Blas en la mañana demasiado negra para ver la lluvia que arañaba toda la casa. El viento que apagó la luz eléctrica e hizo que Tití cocinara en el hornillo, picando el pollo junto a un quinqué, ahora le hacía rezar que Dios ampare todos los campos con casas de madera, como tenía mi tío Juan en Santa Olaya. Sonó en furia de soplos un desgarro, El palo de aguacate alguien gritó y temí vuelos de árboles y casas en pedazos. Así, acampado entre el miedo y la fascinación, pasé mi primer huracán comiendo arroz con pollo mientras caía la casa de Juanito en Santolaya. The second poem is sort of an infomercial. This novel comes out in the fall. It's called Don't Let Me Die in Disneyland. I'll read you the heading. A picaresque, smart, and smart-ass memoir of Harvard lawyer Eddie Lopreina's New Yorkian life in, quote, the country I was offered. And the title, Eddie takes the title from a poem he wrote in college, and that's the beginning of the novel. And I'll read it. It's called Don't Let Me Die in Disneyland. Don't Let Me Die in Disneyland where camera posed under Donald Duck's hug and canopy beak. Children don't see a cloud pirate ship of black cotton candy, where sniffing me Pluto picks up no scent, and Goofy's too smart to trip on a speed bump. He knows it's just me. Don't let me die in Disneyland, where buckskin Crockett aims his supremacy at infantry uniformed Mexican clowns where home from the mine, Snow White Seven Dwarfs all claim to be dopey and dance around hi-ho as off to death I go. Don't let me die in Disneyland where Jiminy Cricket chirps not at all and Pinocchio's nose stays thimble small despite his big lie, I never was there, 
lost boy who lost every happy thought, who fell from his flight to never, never land and had to grow up. Don't let me die in Disneyland, where in gunpowder night fireworks awe blooms to illuminate Cinderella Castle, but not the crossbones of a black hull, its treasure, my corpse, unseen above Main Street, as in Grandmaster Tucks, a trumpet for scepter, Mickey Mouse leads the American parade. I hate to read from phones, but my printer was <laughs> didn't print. So uh, there's a I write a I don't know, I'm, I've been writing a bunch of poems that are imitations of classic American poems, and one of them is uh, it's a poem by you know, called Inauguration Day, in which uh, Robert Lowell writes about the inauguration of um, Eisenhower, and it has a kind of classic ending. He says the nation summons Ike the mausoleum in its heart. Uh, I kind of changed that a little bit. So, Inauguration Day, January 2016. His snow job whitened the nation. His subtext drilled a finger into the pussy of truth, dolled up for the ascendance of her pimp. Before frozen, uh, sorry, before giants' frozen eyes, patriots donning red caps, Implore giant lips to pronounce, shamanic words to revive the exhumed, greed-eaten corpse of the country assassinated in Dallas. Day for minds pledged not to think. Let cloud-covered stars undetectably determine inhuman destinies. Faceless legal corporate persons, lives God is believed to assign throughout this captive planet. Day, the nation summons Trump, the motherfucker in its heart. Buenas tardes. Buenas tardes. Uh, I want to thank Penn. I want to thank the poets, and I want to thank all of you. The official government death toll as a result of Hurricane Maria stood at 64 by the end of last year. Uh, as we know, independent investigations placed the actual death toll at well over 1,000. The failure to count the bodies piling up in morgues across the island as if dead Puerto Ricans were enemies in wartime served a propagandistic purpose, creating the illusion that the crisis had been averted, that Trump, FEMA, and the governor of Puerto Rico rose up to slay the hurricane. Now the island fades from public attention like Atlantis sinking below the waves. That's why it matters so very much 
that we are all here at a benefit for hurricane relief. Demagogues act out metaphors. Trump famously tossed paper towels to hurricane survivors in Guanajuato, the subjects of empire. Keep in mind that Donald Trump was born in 1946. A New Yorker of his generation grew up with the stereotypes of Puerto Ricans typical of this city in the 25 years of migration following World War II. A decade separates us. I grew up with the same stereotypes at the same time in the same city, the difference being that Trump internalized those racist caricatures and I saw those caricatures refuted in my activist household. My father, Frank Espada, was an organizer in the East New York section of Brooklyn, a leader of the Puerto Rican community, a photographer who created the Puerto Rican Diaspora Documentary Project. When Trump tweeted that Puerto Ricans want everything to be done for them, he was simply invoking the old myth of Puerto Ricans on welfare. Now, however, this myth, lacking only the sombrero and cactus of its drowsing Mexican counterpart, forms the foundation of lethal social policy. Thousands of Puerto Ricans, well aware of Trump's sneering, organized themselves into brigadas, work brigades, clearing away the wreckage left by hurricanes and colonialism. They bring to mind the last uprising, the Nationalist Rebellion for Independence in 1950, when U.S. warplanes bombed a town called Utuado. The poem I will read, Letter to My Father, speaks of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, especially that mountain town of Utuado. My father was born in Utuado. My grandmother was born in Utuado. My great-grandfather was the mayor of Utuado. John Lee Anderson, writing in The New Yorker, says, quote, the municipality of Utuado has become a byword for the island's devastation, an equivalent to New Orleans' lower Ninth Ward after Hurricane Katrina. I wrote letters to my father in October of 2017. My father died in February of 2014. The poem evolved from the practice of talking to my father's earthly remains, his ashes in a box. I write to him as if he is here but not here. If he were here, Frank Espada would tell you, this is not Puerto Rico's first hurricane. Colonialism is a hurricane. Debt is a hurricane. Trump is a hurricane. After Hurricane Maria, a sign rose up in Utuado. Campamento Los Olvidados. Camp of the Forgotten. That sign articulates an ethical imperative not to forget, to bear witness, to tell whatever we know with great urgency. I had to tell my father, and I have to tell you. This poem is called Letter to My Father, October 
2017. You once said, my reward for this life will be a thousand pounds of dirt shoveled in my face. You were wrong. You are seven pounds of ashes in a box. A Puerto Rican flag wrapped around you next to a red brick from the house in Utuala where you were born, all cramped together on my bookshelf. You taught me there is no God. No life after this life, so I know you are not watching me type this letter over my shoulder. When I was a boy, you were God. I watched from the seventh floor of the projects as you walked down into the street to stop a public execution. A big man caught a small man stealing his car, and everyone in Brooklyn heard the car alarm wail of the condemned, he's killing me! At a word from you, the executioner's hand slipped from the hair of the thief. The kid was high, was all you said when you came back to us. When I was a boy, and you were God, we flew to Puerto Rico. You said, my grandfather was the mayor of Utualo. His name was Buenaventura. That means good fortune. I believed in your grandfather's name. I heard the tree frogs chanting to each other all night. I saw banana leaf and elephant palms sprouting from the mountain's belly. I gnawed the mango's pit and the sweet yellow hair stuck between my teeth. I said to you, you came from another planet. How'd you do it? You said, every morning, just before I woke up, I saw the mountains. Every morning, I see the mountains. In Utuado, three sisters, all in their 70s, all bedridden, all Pentecostales, who only left the house for church, lay sleeping on a mattress spread across the floor when the hurricane gutted the mountain the way a butcher slices open a dangled pig and a rolling wall of mud buried them, leaving the fourth sister to stagger into the street, screaming like an unheeded prophet about the end of the world. In Utualo, a man who cultivated a garden of aguacate and carambola, feeding the avocado and star fruit to his nieces from New York, saw the trees in his garden beheaded all at once like the soldiers of a beaten army, and so hanged himself. In Utuado, a welder and a handyman rigged a pulley with a shopping cart to ferry rice and beans across the river where the bridge collapsed, witnessed the cart swaying above so many hands that raised the sign that told the helicopters, Campamento los Olvidados! Camp of the Forgotten. Los Olvidados wait seven hours in line for a government meal of Skittles and Vienna sausage or a tarp to cover the bones of a house with no roof as the fungus grows on their skin from sleeping on mattresses drenched with the spit of the hurricane. They drink the brown water waiting for microscopic monsters in their bellies to visit plagues upon them. A nurse says, these people are going to have an epidemic. These people are going to die. 
The president flips rolls of paper towels to a crowd at a church in Wainabo, Zeus lobbing thunderbolts on the locked ward of his delusions. Down the block, cousin Ricardo, Bernice's boy, says that somebody stole his can of diesel. I heard somebody ask you once what Puerto Rico needed to be free, and you said, tres pulgadas de sangre en la calle. Three inches of blood in the street. Now, three inches of mud flow through the streets of Utualo, and troops patrol the town, as if guarding the vein of copper in the ground, as if a shovel digging graves in the backyard might strike the ore below, as if La Brigada swinging machetes to clear the road might remember the last uprising. I know you are not God. I have the proof. Seven pounds of ashes in a box on my bookshelf. Gods do not die, and yet I want you to be God again. Stride from the crowd to seize the president's arm before another roll of paper towel sails away. Thunder Spanish obscenities in his face. Banish him to a roofless rainstorm in Utuado so he unravels one soaked sheet after another till there is nothing left but his cardboard heart. I promised myself I would stop talking to you, white box of gray grit. You were deaf even before you died. Hear my promise now. I will take you to the mountains where houses lost like ships at sea rise blue and yellow from the mud. I will open my hands. I will scatter your ashes in Upualo. Okay, so we have some time uh, to open up the floor for uh, Q&A. So uh, those of you with questions, please give us your questions. Let's keep them as brief as we possibly can so we can get as many questions in as possible. So who, who's first? Don't all rush the stage at once. Um, first of all, can I... I'm going to get you in a second, but can I just get a round of applause for this panel one more time? Amazing. Okay. We have a question in the back. Um, if you could please uh, just um, do as best you can to project the question to as many people as you can with your voice. To Denise, yes. What inspires me to write poetry about the island? My, my, I mean, my family. My family inspires me. Uh, my mom, my abuela, um, that, that part of my, my culture, my heritage. Um, after college, I played basketball in Arecibo. So, you know, I, I, and I think that time was where I really reconnected with my family. Um, and so I think that they, these, stories, these stories shape us. And in light of the hurricane, I think us as, as artists, as, as Puerto Rican artists, um, we have a responsibility to, to speak out. Um, and we know that poems and art and songs have always been the soundtrack to social movements. 
And so um, I, I try to in, you know, add my voice to the chorus of many important voices. All right. Yes, sir, in the front. Gracias a ti. So, el Ateneo, for those of you who didn't know, the Ateneo Puerto Riqueño is one of the premier cultural institutions in Puerto Rico. This man is the president of that organization, and he says that Puerto Rico will be free. Puerto Rico será libre, indeed. Thank you, sir. Yes. Yes, ma'am, please. Um, so there is all of this, you know, like knowledge and, and, and recognition of the colonization of Puerto Rico, you know, has been a colony for 120 years, right? And, um, and it, has a, it has been a place of plunder, you know, for U.S. imperialists. And today, you know, as you all very, we're very powerfully speaking, we are confronting a Trump in the White House in this freaking murderous empire, right? And we saw, you know, the the, the extent of what they are capable of doing when hurricane after hurricane came through, and the 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 response was blaming it on the people, you know, right. was genocidal. Someone said, like, I'm not going to call it. Anything, it was just something else. It was genocide. It was genocide when it was done by the US and by this presidency um, after the hurricane. Right. So um, I want to ask to all of you like, how do you see, you know, like the, the relationship of, you know, right now, like being conf confronting something much worse than what was before, right? And then the fight to actually stop, you know, like the the, the horror that can that can come from this presidency, not just for Puerto Rico, but for the whole world. So you're asking what the confrontation? I'm I'm not sure I understand your question. Like how do you guys like like do you see the urgency right now? Uh huh. Right. Okay. Um, and then I want to thank Martina Spada too because I am a volunteer in Revolution Books, which is a revolutionary bookstore in Harlem. And when Trump we know this place. Uh, gave this, you know, his okay. comments of shithole uh, countries, right. we had a, a 
cool, so called shit. Yeah. Okay. And so let. Right. Well, we're not going to let him burn it down. Right. Yeah. Let's let's get to the question, though. Um, so, who wants to start? Am I starting? Dale Martin. Come on. Okay. And what I'm hearing at the stage is Dale Martin. So. <laughs> well, I you know first of all, thank you for that question and that comment. We all feel the urgency in this room. Our first responsibility is to make sure everybody else feels that same urgency. All right? I don't know if you noticed, but the world has moved on. Um, and we need to do something about that. It, it, was, uh, it was a shock for people in this country to see the images of Puerto Rico back in September and October. The shock has passed. People have gone back to their lives. People have gone back to the shopping mall. People have gone back to their uh, everyday uh, concerns and they have the freedom to ignore us. And we know that's true because they've been ignoring us since 1898. So we have to continue <coughs> to raise hell and not let people forget. And you know, we have the, the, the advantage and the privilege of being poets up here. We have uh, a, a forum, we have a public forum, we can speak, do whatever you can to make sure that people don't forget. There are people in this room who are feeling, I can hear it, who are feeling the grief still and feeling the pain, not only of the, the hurricane's decimation, but of once again, the sensation of oblivion of being forgotten. And we got to say, no mas, we are not going to allow you to do that. Now this may seem like an impossible task. I mean, uh, really, it may seem impossible. But I can tell you that this is a dream that was passed on to me, not only by my father, but I want to, and I want to mention this specific individual, Clemente Soto Vélez. This is the continuity we have in this room, okay? Clemente Soto Vélez was a poet and political prisoner. He was imprisoned for seditious conspiracy in 1936. They let him out in 1940 on the condition he not make any more speeches. He went back to the island. He made four more speeches. He got two more years in prison. He got out. He settled in New York, and he mentored scores of writers and artists in this city, myself included. Right? Now, Clemente Soto Vélez mentored me. He was born in Lares in 1905. Therefore, it is not too much of a stretch to say, I am the, I'm setting up here as the living link to the Grito de Lares. And if I am up here doing that, I am doing that for myself and for my community, but for Clemente Soto Vélez and for the people who would not let us shut up. Right? And I'm going to keep doing this until I drop. And hopefully that won't be anytime soon. <laughs> right? But this is what we have to communicate. And, you know, whatever it takes. And, you know, we have poets for Puerto Rico, right? We should have lawyers for Puerto Rico, doctors for Puerto Rico, accountants for Puerto Rico, plumbers for Puerto Rico. You know, 
teachers in Puerto Rico, dog groomers in Puerto Rico. You know what I mean? Right? And so this is, and it's up to us. Right? Change does not come from the White House. It comes from our house. Uh, sure. Could you could you stand up and make sure everybody? Yeah, um, there, there are several organizations that are doing work on the island. There are several organizations that are doing work here. Um, but I would say the best work kind of begins at home. You mentioned the kids, right? Um, how many of you, let me just do a quick poll. How many of you in this room um, were educated at all on the colonial relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States? Okay. That's actually a pretty decent number. How many of you were told, how many of you had the word colony used when you were, uh, when you were talking about it? I'm talking about in school. I'm not talking about at home. Okay. See, that's, that's the difference, okay? We, we in school can talk about, you know, current events. We can talk about the, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because it's on television every day. Um, we talk about the Middle East. Um, but even, even the talking that we do on television um, and in public is um, painfully devoid of any sort of context, right? What you can do is start educating the people around you about what exactly Puerto Rico is to the United States. Here's what you have to understand. There's two ways to talk about PR in terms of language. You can talk about it in the poetic and you can talk about it in the political, right? We're good at the, po at the politics of it, but not everybody, or, or the, po the poetics of it, but not everybody is. So I'm gonna give you two words that you need to bring home. The word is unincorporated territory. It's a legal term. It's in, in, in international relations, it means, um, well, it's not quite international relations. This is basically a Supreme Court language, right? Which basically says that Puerto Rico and Guam and other unincorporated territories legally do not constitute part of the national character. What that means is we are US citizens living on an island that technically, legally, does not belong to the territorial integrity of the United States. That's a very large distinction between that and an incorporated territory, which Alaska and Hawaii were before they became states. You understand? So when people ask you about the statehood issue, or the independence issue, or any sort of issue, you have to understand this country has no intention of bringing us into the fold because it is written in the law. It's not gonna happen. There are people who will tell you that it might, but that's BS. 
You have to understand that the relationship that was set up legally is a colonial relationship. And there's a lot of terminology and there's a lot of ways to understand it, but you know, if you look at books um, by the, the historian Ronald Fernandez, there's a good place to start looking. Um, there's even a really popular book called War Against All Puerto Ricans um, by Nelson Dennis. Uh, there are some historians who take issue with that book, but it's a good place to start. But you need to educate the folks around you so that those people can get outraged. And, and it sort of works that way, sort of like a, a crazy pyramid scheme, right? Um, you, there, there are so many different places to educate and there's so many places to talk. Um, to, to name one place would almost do a disservice to it. Maybe someone on the panel can talk more about it. I think it would be helpful since we're here, we can mobilize ourselves like right now. Um, so um, Uprose is one organization that I follow I'm on social media, uh, at least just to just get the updates and see when, because the, there are, I naively, um, when Post for Puerto Rico started to emerge as a thing, I naively was like, I have to organize a march. And my friend, uh, uh, Mari Morales Williams, who's an activist and an organizer said to me, pulled me aside and very lovingly said, you don't need to do that. There are people organizing. There are people doing it, and just because we don't see it necessarily in our neighborhood or wherever we are, it's happening. So Uprose is one, Defend PR is, is another one, and I don't know if, if other panelists just want to throw out names of organizations, you can join their email list, and they are organizing around this. Also, there was a lot of mobilization around calling the switchboard in DC to talk about healthcare and other important issues. When you call your senator, when you call your governor, right, your, your elected officials, ask them, uh, tell them you're disappointed in FEMA, and ask them about Puerto Rico. I think it's also important to say, some people may be intimidated and they, want, they don't want to carry the moniker of activist. They're like, oh, I, that's not for me. Or I'm, I'm not in a condition to be on a march. I think it's important also to acknowledge what you can offer and how you can offer it. Even if it is through knowledge, even if it is through organizing small community in your community, and it may not be a Puerto Rican community, but it could be your community of reaching out to defend Puerto Rico or to uprose. But I think it's important to acknowledge people who don't feel that they can do the, 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 what they perceive to be the activist role. Activism comes in many different ways. Activism can come in healing. Activism can come in offering a, a student from Puerto Rico who now came into the school where your child attends, maybe offer that family a hello, a greeting. My school has offered um, space for students who come from Puerto Rico. And many people are like, oh, we don't know what to do now because now I have a new kid and uh, it's the middle of the year. Or you're, you're, again, activism is different for everyone. It looks different, it sounds different, it feels different. For me, it comes from a place of healing. So if you know people, if you know people from Puerto Rico, and it's interesting because you'll meet them anywhere because they're coming in because they have no resources on the island. Their resources have been abolished. So they're coming in, they're trying to navigate. It, it, this is not a new story, this is cyclical, right? This is our, our new story again. But when they come to you, rather than reject or rather than make them an inconvenience, I think it, you should acknowledge the fact that these people have been left homeless, islandless. So I deal with the educational system. I'm a New York City public school teacher for 16 years. So I see the influx of families kind of trying to make their way. I've seen it even when I go out to dinner, there's families that are brand new and in this kind of weather is shocking all the time, adding to that grief. So if I can extend just a simple hello, how are you? How are you feeling? How's your heart? Where have you been? Do you want, hey, let's connect. Those simple acts of community make a person who has been displaced feel seen. 
So activism is very different. I don't want everyone to just get stuck on the idea that, oh, well, I have to go march, and I don't feel comfortable marching. That is not the only form of activism you can do. So think about what you can offer. And it can be as simple as that, but it can be as grand as, as getting involved in, in specific organizations. But think about the children that are coming in. I always think about the students that come in through the doors. They are not aware fully of what is happening to them. We know what's happening. We see it. We see the stress already in their bodies when they come through the door. So seek out organizations like that. Seek out, find out if your local schools have students that came from Puerto Rico. Maybe you can offer something that they need. All right, so we had a question in the, in the back there. Um, go ahead. Would you stand up, please, sir? If you could. Thank you. <laughs> put it to you this way. When you spill juice in your kitchen and your mama gets angry at you, do who cleans it up? Sometimes. Sometimes your mama cleans it up. Sometimes the person who made the spill cleans it up. My feeling is this. You know, we, we had... Bombing runs on the island of Yeques for I don't know how many years. We've had environmental degradation. We have had colonialism. When I say colonialism, that's a very large and blanket term. Here's the real, here's the real issue. There are people who were murdered straight up, shot in their homes to maintain this regime. I don't know what dollar amount the United States thinks that Puerto Rico owes them. But whatever dollar amount it is pales in comparison to what is owed to Puerto Rico. Okay? So in terms of, yeah, I want the United States to come clean their mess up. I want them to come and take care of the things that they messed up in the immediate. Then I want them to look structurally at the ways in which the economy of Puerto Rico is set up to benefit the economy of the United States. And I want them to correct that. There are small business loans available, okay, to anybody, you know, who, who wants to seek out a grant here in the city. If you want to start up a business, right? You want to start up a business in Puerto Rico that challenges U.S. dominance, that business ain't going nowhere, okay? That's the, that's the reality of the situation, okay? Um, do I want Puerto Rico to be independent in an ideal world? Absolutely. I would love for Puerto Rico to be independent, but what that looks like is another, is another sort of whole set of uh, political expectations and everything else. Here's, here's the, the thing that guides me, all right, and, I, and I'll end here. No nation 
should ever own another nation. And that's what happened. That is what is happening right now in Puerto Rico. We are a wholly owned subsidiary of the United States. That situation has to change. And if um, if independence is the route to do that, I'm all for it. There's no what? Absolutely. Right. Um, you said before it's not going to become a state, but then you also you also said something about the nationalists who, who wanted it to be free. And then, I don't know, it's like just differing opinions. It's like there's not one concrete opinion that says, listen, Puerto Rico. Welcome, welcome, to, welcome to Puerto Rican politics in 2018. Yeah. So if you either you either put us together and say, hey, listen, we need to come together and have one opinion to help the island succeed, I guess. Or, you know, it's just it's just gonna be the same thing. I, I, I don't think that and let me let me let me yeah. let this panel answer, okay? Um, but just generally speaking, I don't think we need to coalesce around a, a political option because that centers the United States in the in the in the in the in the questioning. I think we have to we have to think we have to try to think differently about things. I'm just going to say that generally. Let me let this panel answer. All right. Thank you. Um, and thank you for your questions and your comments. I was going to ask you: Have you ever heard of something called a masacre de Utuado? Of course. Okay. You want to tell people what happened? But specifically, you know, when I, when I spoke earlier, I, I referenced the fact that during this nationalist uprising in 1950, U.S. warplanes bombed the mountains of Puerto Rico. They bombed Utuado, U.S. warplanes. And in addition, uh, uh, troops rounded up, National Guard rounded up uh, uh, nationalists from Utuado. They marched them into the police station put them up against the wall, and mowed them down. That sounds like just any other third, quote unquote, third world country, doesn't it? Well, that shit's been going on since forever. And one of the consequences of that is we share a collective fear of our own future. We have been terrorized into accepting the situation as it is. And, for not, and, and this is part of the reason we cannot do anything except imagine a taken for, for granted reality. The answer to your question is both. Many Puerto Ricos have been taken out of Puerto Rico since this all started. Right? It has to do with cheap labor. It has to do with natural resources. It has to do with a sort of a typical colonial scenario. Moreover, when I say both, I'm not being facetious. There are legal models for decolonization, models that come out of other empires. When, the, when Great Britain had to release India, had to release its other colonies, they didn't just kick the boat in the water, all right? A decolonization model 
exists. Uh, models that have been applied to Puerto Rico, by the way, which require a gradual independence, okay? Where there is money coming in to deal with things like infrastructure, where there is money coming in to assure that the transition is a just and fair transition, right? But we have to get it out of our heads if for some reason we're the only country on earth that does not deserve independence and that we are the only people on earth who cannot navigate our own destiny. Hey, that, you know, that's just crazy. Um, so I see independence not only as an idealistic solution, but a very pragmatic one. And the fact of the matter is, on the ground right now, we're seeing it being carried out. People did not wait after a certain point in time for FEMA to show up. What did they do? They grabbed the shovels, they grabbed the machetes, and they did it themselves. People did not wait for those government meals to arrive from FEMA beyond the Skittles and, and Vienna sausage. Right? They began feeding each other. An organization called Comedores Sociales Puerto Rico. Um, you know, I've, I've done several benefits in involving them. These are, these are Puerto Ricans feeding each other and not waiting around for FEMA and the damn blue tarps. Right? That is independence in action. I think we I think we have time for how many more questions? Is one more? One more question. Okay. Okay. Let's let's get the let's get I I, I know, but we only have time for one more, so I'm gonna get the lady up top, okay? If you if there are any more questions that you want to ask, well we can stick around for a little bit and just you know answer them individually. Yes. I'll answer that. Uh, uh, I probably cover all the generations that nobody else covers here. And, uh, and I can tell you that, yeah, from the very beginning, and actually my novel is about that. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that he comes and, this is set in the 70s, he doesn't, he starts not to recognize the same people he knew at the beginning. And he has to deal with that. Um, it's, it's, um, I wrote a piece that I haven't published yet called The History of Flights, in which, I mean, I was, I was brought here at four months old, and I was back there when I was 10 months old, and I was back here when I was two years old, and it was back and forth. I, I flew on every generation of aircraft, and I knew them by heart. And so I wrote this essay where I simply just described the airplanes and the passengers and the airports. And it, I mean, they produced the people of the time. I mean, you couldn't have the you couldn't have Operation Bootstrap without the prop jet, and the prop jet allowed the separation even more, and the separation of the of the people at the same time that there were more six hours close. I mean, hours closer, they got more separated because they realized they weren't the same anymore. It was a very complicated thing. So yeah, so dealing with that, and now the island is dealing with that. Dealing with the question he brought up, I mean, one has to do with the fact that one of the problem, the consequences of the hurricane is the brain drain. 
You have higher middle class professionals leaving. What patriotism is there to go back? Without them, the island is subject to a lot of, you know, jerk hebados who jump around, you know, screaming, trying to get American money. So, you know, it's a very complicated thing as to who is Puerto Rican. Eventually, we don't have to know, you know, what does that mean? Okay. Sorry. Thanks. I think it's important to go back. As Puerto Ricans, we have inherited a nostalgia. We don't actually learn our history until we get to college, if we get to college. Um, unless you have parents who are well-versed in that. My father was a migrant farm worker from Puerto Rico, from Ciales, Puerto Rico. And he came on a plane with no seats. He came with folding chairs on a plane to work with a group of Puerto Rican men in Vineland, New Jersey. And my father, I recorded his voice many, many years ago, and he explained to me that when he came to Vineland, New Jersey, he said it was slavery. He said they did not prepare any of us for the weather. All the men came because there was no work, no money to be made in Puerto Rico. He left his family. He came to Vineland, New Jersey, and they were thrown goodwill bags to put on clothing to go pick in the fields. And they, and they were not prepared for what they faced. He said he put on a, I remember distinctly him describing, I put on a red sweater. That obviously, there was a woman's red sweater, and I put it on my legs, and I tied it at the waist underneath my pants because I couldn't take it. He had to learn. It, he said it was like a, un campamento, like a camp, where the men had to learn how to cook because there was no food. They couldn't figure out what to do. All their traditions, all their gender norms, all the societal norms were gone. My father learned how to cook white rice because he's like, this is all we had. So I did not know that story. If it wasn't for the privilege of having gone to Hunter College and majoring in black and Puerto Rican studies mm -hmm. and reading about this and having my father just casually say, Yo estuve ahí. that is something that many of us don't get the opportunity to learn, unfortunately. And this mass exodus of the island is going to add to that, to that lack of knowledge, to the gaps between generations. It is my responsibility to teach my children, both in school and in my household, that Puerto Rico is important, that the family there is not just family that you never see, that you hear about, but that doing something there that impacts you, that has a, 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 puts a mark into your timeline that you may not even be aware of. So if it wasn't for me excavating and kind of throwing it out there, that, that conversation, that audio tape would have never happened, which then led me to research that and research migration and look into why, because I could never understand as a child why my father didn't want to go back to Puerto Rico. And it was because of the grief. The sacrifice made by coming to work for his family was that he lost his family. And then I have siblings that I don't connect with because we don't know each other or they've passed or they don't know my story. They think their father abandoned him, them. So it's very different. And those disconnects in, in our family lines, those cause people like me, seekers, to go in there and kind of find out why, what happened, where in history do, do, does my family lie, where in history can I find my father? So I feel that, you know, when, when we speak about all these issues that Puerto Rico's facing, again, I, I speak to the part where there's healing in there somewhere. 
And we need to find those gaps. And we need to look for that family that we don't necessarily talk to too much. But we should try. Because there are stories there. And there are storytellers that don't have the opportunities and the privileges that we have to hold the microphone, to have these pen panels that can tell us all the stories about their struggle. So to me, I, I, I feel like it's not just through higher education, but it is definitely through the arts. Are we, out of, are we out of time? Okay. So we are officially out of time. I am going to run out. So I love you all, but I have to get to she my She has thesis. to run. She so got to go get that paper. I love you all. <laughs> yes, baby. One, one, of the ways we, uh, one of the ways we battle systemic oppression is through the acquisition of multiple college degrees. And she's off to get another one. Thank you all for coming.